All right. One of the best parts of worship right there. Well, our journey through the minor prophets, minor because of the length of their book, I shared with First Service that recently read a description of the minor prophets as the short-winded prophets. It's not that they're not important, it's just they didn't leave as much behind as the major prophets did. Well, we come to everybody's favorite, Nahum. You guys have just been waiting for us to get to Nahum, haven't you? Uh, I know y'all spend a lot of your time reading Nahum and thinking about him. Uh, Nahum's kind of a funny name, but you might want to think of him as Nehemiah. Nahum is kind of a shortened version of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah and Nahum mean comfort, which is kind of ironic if you read the book and think there's not a lot of comfort there. But once you begin thinking about what he has to say, it really is comforting. Uh, Nahum is going to deliver words of the Lord against the city of Nineveh. Now, the last time we talked about Nineveh was when God sent Jonah to Nineveh to try to bring Nineveh back to him. And evidently, that was effective at that time, but it's been about a hundred years since Jonah. And so Nineveh's gone a different direction, and God is taking a different approach. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the word of God by his faithful servant, Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes, maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And I love this line. And clouds are the dust of his feet. Isn't that a marvelous way to think of clouds? Uh, See if you can keep that imagery in your mind when you look up at the fluffy clouds. And that's the dust of God's feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can stand against his indignation? Who can endure his fierce wrath? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. But the Lord is good a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Mm. May God bless the reading of his word. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but have you ever been had a job where someone else kept doing your job? You know, you had your responsibilities assigned, but someone just kept kind of getting over into your business. Well, that happened to me one time back in college at Lubbock Christian. I've got some Lubbock Christian folks here today. Uh, I worked in the cafeteria for a while and fought and clawed my way up that pyramid to the pinnacle of student workers at the cafeteria. I was promoted to butcher. Now, don't laugh. That was, that was an exalted position. 
to be the butcher or be one of the butchers. There were several of us. Well, part of my assignment at that time was to go in and to break down the halves of beef. The, the, the uh, cafeteria manager, Brother Bell, would buy beef by the halves, which meant you got the steaks and everything. We, we ate well. But I would go in whenever a shipment of beef came in, and I'd start breaking that beef down into the smaller parts. Well, there was this guy that worked there, and he was one of the underlings, you know. He was not butcher, and yet he would come in a little early some days, and he would go and start breaking down that beef. So when I got there, he had pretty much already done my job. Now, that just ticked me off, to be quite honest, because after all, that was my job. How dare him do my work? And what do you do about that? Run to the manager and say, he's doing my job. You know, just kind of deal with it and try to figure out some way to make it work. But what really got me was that was implicit in his sticking his nose into my business was the criticism that he could really do it better than I could. You know, that really I wasn't doing it very well, and that's why he had to step up and handle matters. Well, I hope you enjoyed my story, but you may be asking, what's that got to do with Nahum? Well, Nahum, one of his purposes is, is to warn us that we need to be doing our business and not someone else's business. That things have been assigned and we have a job and we need to make sure that we do our job and not someone else's. And particularly the someone else, according to Nahum, is God. That we need to be careful that we don't take on responsibilities that he has kept for himself. That we don't abandon the work he's given to us and try to do the work that really belongs to him. Now, there is a human tendency for us to want to do God's job. Nahum is not the first guy to, to warn us about this. We go all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis and that one of those first stories, and we see that there, Adam and Eve, they wanted to do God's work too, didn't they? In that story, as God has created all things and he put them in the garden there, he said, okay, Here's your work. You're to take care of the garden. You're to do this. You're to do that. But I will tell you what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And it wasn't long before they decided God wasn't doing a very good job of that and that they could make up their own minds about what is good and what is evil. So they did God's job, but the problem is they didn't do it very well, did they? And that can be our problem, too is that when we begin taking on things that belong to him and trying to do the things that he said he would do, then we really cause a mess in our lives and in the lives of others. So let's see what it is that is God's job that Nahum warns us about and encourages us to let him do that while we do our work. A moment ago, we read the opening words to Nahum, and right there at the very beginning is in Nahum's language, the word mise. Isn't that a funny word? Mise <laughs> means oracle. 
Now, oracle is, is, is a very specific word. Not all prophecies given by the prophets are called oracles. Only a few, about 19 in Scripture, bear the title oracle. And if you go back and read all the oracles in the Bible, you will find that those are given under special circumstances, specific circumstances. They are given particularly whenever God's people are doubting that God is going to do what he said he would do. They are given whenever we begin thinking God is not doing his job. After all, he said he would do this, but it's just not happening. And so when God's people got that way, God would send them an oracle to remind them that he is God, he has responsibilities, and he will fulfill the responsibilities that are his. So in Nahum's day, what the people were doubting was this. When is God going to do something about Nineveh? And this has been going on for a long time. We mentioned Jonah and his dealings with Nineveh. Well, after that, Nineveh or Assyria, it was the capital city of Assyria, had come down and had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped out the city of Samaria, and had come down and, and really made Judah a vassal state. They had had total control of Judah's economy and politics for over a hundred years. And the people were saying, why doesn't God do something about this? He said he would do something about it. Why doesn't he? When is he going to do his job? So against that idea, against that doubt, Nahum utters his oracle. Now, one thing for you people who like literary criticism of the Old Testament, some of you may like that and didn't even know you did, but it's interesting to me that, that when he delivers his oracle, he puts it in a different form or shape than most other oracles. Most oracles are written in prophetic form, but he writes his in liturgical form. He writes his as worship. Sometimes we get the idea that worship and social justice have nothing to do with each other. Nahum would beg to differ because whenever Nahum was running into these problems, he sang a song. He wrote a psalm. And the way he wrote it was by an acrostic. And I want to point this out to you because these first eight verses can seem kind of choppy. They kind of jump, jump. God's going to get you. God's going to get you. Oh, the Lord is good. Did you pick up on that? Did anybody figure out, hey, you know, how does that fit? Well, the lines are arranged according to an acrostic. And the acrostic is by alphabetical order. The first line of Nahum starts with an, well, we'd say A, wouldn't we? Uh, actually, his letter was Aleph, all right? The second line then would start with a B or bait, and the third line would start with a, did y'all say C? Uh, Brian didn't. Brian, I caught Brian the first time to you. Yeah, no, the Hebrew alphabet goes A, B, G, all right? So it starts with a gimel. All right, but it's still the Hebrew alphabet as we go along. And that's why sometimes it seems to be jumping. But he gives us that form to let us know that we need to return to worship as well as to return to the truth of who God is and what God does. Well, what is it that he's telling us is God's job? Let me read just one verse again. And you pick up on what do you think that it is that that Nahum is telling us is God's job to do. 
A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Now, I'm not real sharp, but I think I got the point. Did you get the point? Vengeance. When it comes to vengeance, it belongs and is the sole property of God. The only one, the only being in all the universe who is called upon to deal vengeance is God. That's why we read the Romans passage that Kevin read. Paul got it, didn't he? He quoted Moses in Deuteronomy when he said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. Now, do we believe that or not? Or do we start thinking, well, God's not doing a very good job with that. There's a lot of people that I think ought to feel the vengeance of the Lord, and it doesn't look like they have. Maybe I need to help. Nahum is here to remind us that we are to stay in our own territory. We're to do our work and let God do his. That's how we show that we truly believe in him and trust in him and think that God is the God of honesty and truth. Well, what is our job that we need to concentrate on? Isn't it good that Nahum follows Micah? Now, I told you all before that I don't really know why all these prophets are in the order that they're in. And this may not be the reason that Nahum follows Micah, but I think it is certainly great that it does. Because when we were studying Micah last week, Micah told us what our job is. Does anyone remember what Micah told us that we are to be all about? that we are to be concentrating on. Well, if you didn't, we got a slide up here. Let's move down. There it is. Remember that? Yeah, that's our job description. Isn't it wonderful? Have you ever had a job where they didn't tell you what to do? Yeah, that can be really frustrating, can it? Uh, Okay, here's your desk. Get busy. Well, what am I supposed to do? Uh, Figure it out. Well, God didn't leave us that way. He gave us a job description. He said, here's what you're supposed to be doing while you walk upon this earth. Let's read it together again, just so if you weren't here last week and you don't know what your job description is, now you're going to know. And for the rest of us to remind us what our job description is. Ready? Let's read together. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There it is. That's what our calling is. That's what we are called to to do. Paul got it, didn't he? Remember the Romans reading again? Whenever he said things like, don't repay evil for evil. And he goes on to say, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of it. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil. Your job is to overcome evil with good. Now, the problem is, even if we know that, It kind of gets tricky, doesn't it? It's tricky trying to understand, well, what is the difference between doing justice and seeking vengeance? You know? Because both of them address evil and wrong. So how do we do justice 
without being vengeful. And where does forgiveness fit into all of this? Because you see, forgiveness is a way to address evil too. So when do we forgive and just shrug our shoulders and say it doesn't matter? And when do we say, no, it's not going to happen again? Well, I have about eight minutes left, and I don't think we can talk about that fully. It's an art more than a science. It's a spiritual discipline that we grow into, a form of maturity as we seek to do our job. But let's make just a couple of observations about justice and forgiveness that are helpful in my thinking, and I hope they help you as well. First of all, justice and doing justice, just like, see, we're supposed to be doing that. Doing justice involves confronting evil and doing all that we can to stop it, to say no more. We will not allow this evil to progress any further. Now, last week we talked about justice. We said another way of looking at it is to sort out everything and figure out what belongs to whom and return to everyone what really belongs to them. And that's true. That, that depends. I mean, that, that covers our, our property, make sure everyone has their property, but also respect and love, peace and safety. For example, it is not vengeance to take a murderer and to separate that murderer from society so they can hurt no one else and so that the evil will stop. That's justice, isn't it? It is justice to separate an abusive person from the victims of abuse. So say no more. You are not going to hurt anybody else. We are going to put you here and you can no longer interact with everyone because we are seeking justice for everyone else and particularly for those whom you have hurt. You see, we get funny ideas at times that we are out to punish, but we also get funny ideas in church that we're just supposed to overlook. I never will forget dealing with a woman who was literally getting her teeth knocked out by her husband. And she quoted to me the passage out of Matthew that she was called to turn the other cheek. No! <laughs> Evil is to be stopped. And we are called upon as the people of God to take evil seriously enough that we want to see it stopped in all of its forms, in all of its ways. But we are also called upon to forgive, to love kindness, mercy, goodness. So where does that work in? Well, I want to tell you, to love forgiveness or to love kindness takes evil seriously too because it recognizes the damage that evil does to us and to others. It recognizes that you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because it does. And whenever we are hurt by evil, what we seek to do is to let go of the bitterness and the hate and the tendency that we have to seek vengeance. 
We seek justice but not vengeance. And then we seek to let go before the hate and the bitterness build up in our hearts and eat us alive from the inside. You see, evil is dangerous not only because of the harm it initially does, but because it can plant a seed of bitterness and hate in our hearts to where it consumes our lives, to where our lives are consumed with hating and being angry. And to that, God says, no, 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 don't let evil do that to you. There are times you will suffer from evil in this world because someone has made bad decisions and has decided to be evil themselves. And the evil can only be repaired to any extent that you forgive and let go of the bitterness and rage that you have about that. But you still make sure that you're not going to let it happen again. Do all that you can to stop it. Now, that's... A lot to talk about. We could sit and discuss that for a long time. Like I said, it's an art. Which applies here? Where does it apply? How do you do justice here? How do you do forgiveness here? How do I let go? How do I let go? A couple of stories to close out that maybe will help. They're both about the 96 Atlanta Olympics. Uh, Now, the 96 Atlanta Olympics are kind of a distant memory, ancient history. And there may be a few of us in here that could name some of the athletes that ran in Atlanta in 1996. I can name one or two. You might could name some as well. But most of us remember the Atlanta Olympics for another event. What was that? The bombing, right? The bombing there in Centennial Square that killed one woman and injured many others. We still remember the TV image where the guy is interviewing or talking and then behind him you can see the bomb go off and it's like, (gasps) well, that bomber was on the run for five years. Living out in the wilderness, he was finally arrested and brought to justice. His name was Eric Rudolph. He had set off other bombs in other locations as well. He was found guilty. The justice system worked. They said, no more. We will put you away for the rest of your life. You have proven that you bring evil into this world. We are not going to allow any more of it. All right. Now, we have a custom here, and our justice system has a custom, where victims are allowed to address the perpetrator. You've heard of that. You've seen that. Well, when Eric Rudolph was sentenced... And justice was done. Some of the people who had suffered because of his actions were allowed to address him. And I want to quote two of them and see if this doesn't help us balance the idea of forgiveness and justice. First is the daughter of the woman who was killed by the bomb in Centennial Plaza. This is what she said. Because of you, I have decided to become more tolerant. I have decided to become a more loving person. And of all the tears that I've shed, I will shed no more tears for myself. They will be tears for you and who you are. She's letting go. Is she just saying it doesn't matter? I'm going to forget it? No. But she says, what I have suffered 
will become a positive thing in my life. I will become more tolerant. I will become more loving because of what you had done. That is how I will address your evil. The other woman was a woman who had been injured herself by another one of the bombs that he had planted. And this is what she said to him. I am determined to trump your evil with love for the rest of my life. The only productive response I can have to your evil is to do all I can to bring more good into this world. Now, I don't know if these people were Christian or just figured out the way of God some way. But isn't this what Paul is saying when he said, don't repay evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. We are called upon to insist justice is done. It is our, our calling to make sure people are treated fairly, that people can live in safety, people can live in peace. But at the same time, our calling is to release the anger and the bitterness and never ever to seek vengeance. For vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we trust that he will take care of any vengeance that needs to be done. We take seriously the wrath of God. We take seriously his revelation to us that there will come a day of reckoning when evil will be destroyed. And we also take seriously his invitation to on that day not be found standing amongst those who are evil, but because of his mercy and his grace to let him rescue us and experience his forgiveness so we can pass it on. Nahum knew this, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. In the midst of all this vengeance, we're reminded, the Lord is good, and he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he will protect those who come to him and take refuge in him. His arms are open for us to come. Come and trust that he'll do his job and that he's called us to do ours. Let's stand and sing.